Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Joining us today is Jill M. Cholet, MD, lead author on an article published in the January 2011 Pediatric Critical Care Medicine titled, Children with Single Ventricle Physiology Do Not Benefit from Higher Hemoglobin Levels Post-Cavopulmonary Connection, Results of a Prospective Randomized Controlled Trial of a Restrictive versus Liberal Red Cell Transfusion Strategy. Dr. Chalette is an assistant professor of pediatrics in the Division of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine at the University of Rochester Medical Center in Rochester, New York. The citation for this article is Pediatric Critical Care Medicine 2010, Volume 11, pages 39 to 45. Thank you for being here, Dr. Chalette. Oh, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Would you please uh, start off today by telling us, um, giving us an overview of your study, what you did? Why did you do it? What did you find? Sure, of course. You know, being a critical care physician by trade, um, giving blood products is is fairly routine. One of the more common um, treatment modalities that we have to offer and something we do very regularly. And, um, you know, I found over the past years, I think like a lot of other physicians out there, that very often red blood cells are transfused in response to a certain hemoglobin level or trigger, or in a patient with a clinical condition where there's a concern about their ability to accommodate being anemic, and at times not given really for active clinical indications, but more for concern of of detriment or their ability to compensate. And over the past several years, there's been a lot of interest in red cell transfusions and other blood product uh, transfusions as we learn more about the associated risks and benefits of transfusions, but also with the recognition that this is a limited resource and um, comes at some cost. And I think the idea has then that we're trying to move away from the old 1030 rule where transfusions were given uh, quite frequently with the idea that higher hemoglobin levels had to be maintained and really trying to question when they're given to be sure that it's done for good clinical implications. So in any event, very good work came out in the adult ICU population uh, several years back, which looked at critically ill adults and whether or not they would tolerate use of a more restrictive transfusion protocol. Of course, I'm referring to uh, the TRIC trial and the CRIT study that were done. And um, those studies did find that actually there seemed to be a, a benefit even in, in maintaining patients um, despite being critically ill at these lower hemoglobin levels, particularly somewhere around 7 to 9, compared to transfusing uh, to maintain higher hemoglobin levels around, you know, 10 to 13. And um, that certainly is, is of good interest to me also working in ICU. At the time, there was no pediatric ICU data, uh, at least that I'm aware of. And I work now in a pediatric cardiac ICU and have found that 
the children with congenital heart disease appear to receive really the largest numbers of, of transfusions, both when they come in for cardiac surgery, but even when they come in for a different medical indication, pneumonia or, or potentially a different type of, of surgical operation, that these are children who uh, receive quite a lot of blood um, really seemingly based on having the congenital heart defect rather than really their clinical state and um, would have discussions with cardiologists and other providers about whether or not that was actually indicated and decided to look through the literature. And what I found was that actually there's very little literature out there in the past as far as what is the optimal hemoglobin level in these patients with the most question really in the patients with mixing cardiac lesions or conditions where they have uh, cyanosis develop because of their physiology, and so that in being cyanotic, these children would maintain higher hemoglobins physiologically on their own, and then when they would present with really a more relative anemia, the concern was that they could not compensate for it based on their um, heart disease, and the original thoughts as far as keeping them transfused to a higher hemoglobin level really are derived from, you know, many years in the past when, you know, medicine really didn't have the surgical techniques or the other medical advantages of, as, as we have now. And so we decided to really focus on this patient population to see if we could determine whether children um, with heart disease could be maintained safely at a lower hemoglobin level, even postoperatively. Since the cyanotic children or children with uh, specifically single ventricle physiology, since the concern is, is that with their one cardiac ventricle to do the work of providing um, blood flow, that those children were at greatest risk for having anemia um, and since there's the least amount of data out there on that population, we chose to focus on those children. So we specifically wanted to look at infants and children who had single ventricle physiology who uh, were presenting for either stage 2 or stage 3, so bidirectional Glenn or Fontan procedures, with the hypothesis that these children likely could be maintained uh, postoperatively um, with lower hemoglobin levels and that they would do as well as uh, children receiving more red blood cell transfusions to maintain them at a higher hemoglobin level. We were, of course, interested in uh, the neonates with this particular physiology, single ventricle, but that's a um, more unstable group being neonates and having higher risk procedures. And since there was no work done in this area that, that we know of, we decided to, to focus on the older children who are still cyanotic, although not to the same degree, but who typically have more stable outcomes after these types of surgeries to focus on first before looking at the neonates. So in any event, um, when we had children presenting at our institution, which is a single surgeon institution or was at the time, now we have two surgeons, when they presented for either the bidirectional Glenn or Fontan surgery, um, we screened them um, and randomized them to either what we called a restrictive or a liberal transfusion strategy. Our only eligibility criteria was that they could provide consent. 
um, and we did not exclude uh, for any other reason. And based on that reason, we were able to capture um, something like 98% of the children who presented to us. And we decided that the start of the intervention would be upon their arrival to the pediatric cardiac ICU post-operation. So at the time that they were admitted to the ICU following surgery, they had their first levels drawn and then were followed for 48 hours. And more specifically, our primary objective was really to look at what happened with their arterial lactate levels, both the mean over that 48 hours and the peak as well, to look at a parameter of their hemodynamic state. And we picked lactate because it's readily available. It has a fast turnaround. It's, it's commonly used and has been associated um, in a number of other studies as a marker of morbidity um, and even mortality. And we measured um, using arterial blood gases and uh, venous blood gases and using a cerebral oximeter with the near system, their hemoglobin levels, arterial lactate levels, venous oxygen saturation or mixed venous oxygen saturation, obviously arterial saturation, and then a cerebral oxygen saturation. And those were obtained every four hours for 48 hours. Certainly um, some additional measures may have been uh, obtained and, in fact, were, especially immediately post-operatively when we tend to get blood gases every 30 minutes or so um, until the child becomes stable. And each of the hemoglobin values that were obtained throughout this 48 hours was looked at to determine whether or not the child met the criteria for a red cell transfusion or not. And so the two study groups were labeled restrictive, meaning that if, you're, if the child's hemoglobin level fell below 9 uh, grams per deciliter and was accompanied by any sort of clinical evidence that um, they would, child would benefit from a transfusion, whether it was you know, high heart rate or low urine output or toe temperature, the like, that they would receive a transfusion of 10 cc's per kilo of red blood cells. If that child was randomized to the um, high or the liberal transfusion strategy, at each time point that a hemoglobin was obtained, they would receive 10 cc's per kilo of red blood cells if their hemoglobin was less than 13 grams um, per deciliter, and that really was regardless of their clinical state. Of course, at any time through the study, if the physician um, or surgeon thought that the child was clinically unstable and would benefit from a transfusion, of course, that the protocol could be suspended what we did find actually was that that did not occur throughout the study so that we did have 100% compliance with our protocol. And also we found that we had almost all of our data points were able to be obtained, somewhere around 97%, so that we had uh, the samples every four hours so that we felt like we really were able to maintain these children at their respective hemoglobin goals. So these measures were obtained. There was no restrictions on the amount of crystalloid or colloid that was given. Um, that was done at the discretion of the um, physicians, although certainly was uh, noted um, use of inotropic agents or mechanical ventilation or the like. All the other 
uh, routine ICU care was uh, performed uh, per our local standard of care. And what we did find was um, similar to our hypothesis that the children who were in the restrictive group, that their arterial lactate levels, both the mean and peak, um, were similar to the children maintained at the higher hemoglobin levels. In addition, with the saturation data that we obtained, we measured the change in arterial venous content difference or arterial cerebral content, um, looking for a measure of oxygen utilization and found additionally that there was no significant difference between the groups. So what we believe is that despite initial concerns that these children with their unique single ventricle physiology would not be able to compensate for this relative anemia, that um, in fact that they were able to and they did not manifest any hemodynamic compromise or difficulty with oxygen utilization um, based on the measures that we studied. And this, I believe, um, does raise the question that a hemoglobin trigger uh, should not be warranted in this particular population and that transfusions in this patient population should be based on clinical indications rather just on a hemoglobin value itself. Can you comment on the transfusion thresholds you used? Um, your restrictive strategy uses a hemoglobin of 9, which is um, higher than that in the adult and the pediatric Lacroix trial, which used a hemoglobin of 7. Um, obviously, you have quite a different patient population. How did you arrive at a hemoglobin of 9 as your um, transfusion threshold? That's a great question. You know, when this study was designed, it was in 2005, and at that time, there really was no pediatric data. We really would have preferred to use a similar threshold as Lacroix had uh, closer to 7, but at the time that the study was designed, this was a very sort of foreign concept locally that we would restrict blood given to these patients. And there was a lot of concern from the, um, you know, research subject safety board locally that, um, that we may do harm in letting these children's hemoglobins drift down, even to nine. So although certainly this would have been a more interesting study had it um, had a greater difference between the two groups as far as their hemoglobin levels. At the time, this was thought to be fairly novel and um, aggressive, and uh, we were limited by, by that fact. I think if this study had followed some of the other work, it would have been an easier sell to uh, use uh, lower uh, transfusion thresholds. Well, looking at Table 3 uh, in your study, the venous oxygen saturation was lower in the restrictive strategy, uh, 57% compared to 62% in the liberal strategy, and the oxygen extraction was 31% in the restrictive strategy, which was higher than in the liberal strategy. Do you think that suggests that maybe you're coming close to pushing the envelope with your transfusion threshold? I think that does suggest that, you know, the restrictive group did require more oxygen extraction to maintain themselves. 
you know, how low that they could have tolerated that or not, you know, really would just be speculation um, at my part. It's hard to say, you know, from a clinical, I know statistically that's a, a significant difference, the, the venous saturation of 57 versus 62, but whether that's really clinically a significant difference or not, I'm not sure. And it would be interesting, of course, if a similar study was done that, you know, potentially used a lower hemoglobin threshold to see whether or not uh, potentially there is a limit there and whether or not they would have tolerated going down as low as 7. So I would just be um, speculating. I think 7, even after doing this study, when I'm taking care of these children, uh, hemoglobin of 7 still seems quite low. And I think in clinical practice, we don't often let these children drift well below about eight and a half, um, even in light of the results of this study. So I think I think a lot more work needs to be done in this area before before we can definitively say. Yeah, I think the decision of your uh, institutional review board, um, as you suggested, reflects clinical practice. And uh, I think you could probably get people to accept a hemoglobin of nine, but at this point, I don't know that you could get them to drop it further. Yes, and I'm not sure how comfortable I would feel yeah. in, in, yeah. in doing so, yeah. um, although although it, it is a good question. And, and certainly that raises, you know, are the is the Fontan subgroup quite a bit different? And, of course, they are. It's a different physiology, and it, it certainly would have been a stronger study had all of the patients been either Fontan's or bidirectional gland patients. Certainly there's some diversity in the different cardiac defects that require these procedures. So I, I, what I hope is, is that this is a first step in looking at this population and, you know, perhaps a larger institution or a multi-center um, study might allow for a more uniform population. And, of course, I am quite interested in, in the smallest of these children who, who receive the most, you know, blood, certainly, whether or not we could establish, you know, safer margins for them. But, again, that's going to take some time and cooperation and, and, and likely um, maybe a hard sell as well. This study did not include intraoperative transfusions. You didn't uh, start looking at these patients until they actually got to the PICU post-op. Do you have any information on how much intraoperative transfusion these kids got, presumably at the discretion of the anesthesiologist and the surgeon? Um, was there any difference? Do you have any data on that? Sure. You know, we decided not to include the operation for the intervention. Certainly, it's difficult to tell a surgeon um, how best to manage their patients. <laughs> Absolutely. And, um, and, I, and I, I think that that was certainly the right decision to, to leave that be. I was certainly relieved when the, all the data was in to find that the two groups were still similar when they were admitted to the intensive care units because, of course, I would have been sad to see a, gr a great difference from the start that might um, change our results. So we did track, certainly, how the blood product usage in the operating room um, and, of course, looked at coagulant products, platelets, and other you know, FFP, cryoprecipitate use as well. And, and thankfully, we did find that the, the same 
volumes of red blood cells and white blood cell use uh, was was given in the operating room. So I do believe that the two groups were similar at, at the time of their arrival into the, the study intervention. It would certainly be interesting to try to do a study that had some control over what happened in the operating room, but I, I think that that would be, be difficult <laughs> to, to, to do. I would be very interested to see it done, um, but I think it would be, be difficult to do. I, I am sure you're right about that. Uh, there was a recent study by Thea Garrigan and all that reported in children who underwent corrective surgery for, for congenital heart disease, uh, they retrospectively looked at transfusion and found that transfusion was associated with longer mechanical ventilation. Um, did you look at duration of mechanical ventilation in your study? We did. And, you know, of course, being a you know, being a clinician, I would have certainly preferred to actually have my primary outcomes be more clinical endpoints in nature. You know, our arterial lactate was chosen as a, as a surrogate because we are a smaller center, and to, to do a, a trial with clinical outcomes as primary outcome variables would have required um, much greater patient numbers, and, and at least in my case, multi-center participation. We did look at length of mechanical ventilation, the amount of volume of uh, crystalloid or colloid transfused, the length of uh, inotropic support, and um, hospital days, survival, to see whether or not we would find a difference. I don't think it's all that surprising that the children who were in the restrictive strategy did end up getting um, a little more fluid than the children in the liberal group, although it did not bear out to be significant. Um, and certainly because it wasn't powered to test for those differences, it's hard to draw any big conclusions, although we did show you know, a trend actually that the children in the liberal strategy had fewer uh, hours on uh, the ventilator and uh, fewer days of inotropic support, and, and whether that would still bear out in a larger study or not is, is unknown to me. I don't know what, what that would find. I, I would be certainly more interested in that and hope that potentially in the future a larger trial that could really look at clinical endpoints could help answer this question. Other, you know, PRISM scores or PLOD or um, other indices, we, we certainly thought very long and hard about whether or not to uh, include them, but decided that, that lactate would be a better uh, choice for us um, is, is uh, again, we would need larger subject numbers in order to achieve significant differences with that. Certainly, uh, having a larger threshold difference between the two groups might bring those numbers down if, in fact, you know, you chose a hemoglobin of eight or, or seven if you felt comfortable doing that, and that, that might bring numbers down as well. But the important point being that children in the restrictive strategy did not have worse outcomes than the liberal strategy, so at least it seems to be safe. That, that was our conclusion. Certainly we found no, no difference just with the patients that we had, okay. um, and I think, of course, I was, you know, hoping even maybe that they would look better um, than, than the, their counterparts receiving more blood products. 
but we, we think that we can safely conclude that at least it was tolerated, um, that we didn't identify uh, increased risk from the hemoglobin of nine. Has this study changed the transfusion practice at your institution in this population of children? It certainly has. You know, our ICU works very closely with our cardiologists and our surgeons and the other, you know, subspecialists. And what I had found before doing the study was, was oftentimes there would be a debate with um, other services really sort of voting for uh, more transfusions in this population. It's nice to have a uh, little data to stand behind that says, um, no, no, I think, I think we're okay, and that we can, uh, you know, continue to follow and, and, and certainly would transfuse as clinically indicated. But I think that this has allowed us to move away from just using a transfusion trigger uh, as a number itself and has shown that, you know, these children, you know, are able to increase their oxygen extraction and are able to maintain um, themselves despite being in the, you know, immediate postoperative period. Um, so, yes, in fact, that it has. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? No, uh, just to say how grateful I am to have been uh, invited to participate and um, to thank everyone who uh, helped me. Um, I'm certainly very grateful to have the cooperation of such an excellent surgeon, Dr. Alfieris, who's our local head cardiac surgeon, who really uh, a privilege to work with and, and, and certainly to be allowed to do such a study on his patients. Um, I'm certainly very grateful for that and for the help of the, the whole team here. It was certainly a multidisciplinary effort. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Jill. Thank you. We have been talking today with Dr. Jill M. Chalette from the University of Rochester Medical Center in Rochester, New York, about the article, Children with Single Ventricle Physiology Do Not Benefit from Higher Hemoglobin Levels Post-Cavopulmonary Connection, Results of a Prospective Randomized Controlled Trial of a Restrictive versus Liberal Red Cell Transfusion Strategy, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in January 2011. This concludes our podcast. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. Visit www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. SCCM offers regularly scheduled thought-provoking webcasts on cutting-edge topics within critical care. Webcast participants will receive continuing education credit and have the convenience of attending from their hospitals, offices, or homes. Visit www.sccm.org webcasts for details. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, guest podcast editor for pediatrics. Dr. Parker is director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York. She also is a professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University Medical Center. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org.
org or info at sccm.org.